Hello, I'm James Chow, host of the China Current, where we bring you up close to the people who are shaping our shared global future. This week's episode comes to you from Hong Kong, where I just got back from a long trip to the states and also to Europe. But this episode also goes back to last year, where I sat down with Charles Stevens. This is what I recorded at the time. A couple of weeks ago, I received an email about a university undergraduate student, two years out of school in England and two years into his degree at St Andrews in Scotland. And what fascinated me from the start was that Charles Stevens is ostensibly a student who had a dream to go onto the Silk Road, not merely tracing how it was, but to see and feel and taste it in its current and as yet ongoing emerging form. And I wondered to myself what on earth would possess a student today to invest a year of his life in planning this trip and then to actually execute it, to take it from idea to reality, a reality that so far has articulated itself in a 64-day journey that began in the early parts of summer 2018 in London, right through Europe and through the central part of Asia, landing up over in Iwu in China. He joins me now in Hong Kong at the end of those 64 days. Charles Stevens, I'm going to ask you a bit later about what possesses you to do that and to spend a big chunk of your life and your mental energy towards that. But first of all, I have to ask you a very serious question. When you were a child, were you fortunate enough to go on family holidays? And if you were, where were you taken to? Uh, thank you, James. Um, no, I was. I was. I was very lucky to to be able to travel a lot from the beginning, and I think that's sort of where I got the the travel bug from, and a curiosity and an inquisitiveness for the world around me. Um, where did we go? We went to a lot of places. My my family always loved going to Southeast Asia. We spent a lot of time there in the in the temples and sort of Buddhist monasteries around there. We went to Bhutan. We went to the Amazon. We spent a little bit of time in Europe, in America, where my mother is from. So I was lucky to get a pretty broad exposure. And growing up, did you feel that you belonged to one nationality or the other? Did you feel that you necessarily had more ties with one landmass within a border than the other? I, I find this question of nationality and collective identity an interesting one. Is that the best way of defining ourselves? Is it through our nation? Is it through our race, our class, our gender? What, what is the best way of, uh, of viewing oneself? And I don't think I feel any particular affinity to, to, to one country rather than another. I think looking at humanity as a collective whole and seeing people as, as human rather than dividing them into individual identities is, is a better way of looking at the world and something I strive to do. Of course, the possession which I speak of uh, did have its roots because before this goal to see this new Silk Road for yourself, you were part of a gap year initiative that took you to Ghana in Africa. Uh, there was an orphanage over there and it was running into financial difficulties Pick up the story from that point on and link it to how it brought you to all these wonderful countries and cultures that you've just experienced for yourself. Sure, of course. So 
I was I was very lucky to be able to volunteer and have the opportunity to volunteer at a orphanage community in Ienia in Ghana. Um, it's part of a orphanage called uh, a child on herd. It's a it's a a group and organisation based in the UK, and it was undergoing financial distress. So we had spent a lot of time there. We loved the kids there, and we made the decision to try and do a trip to keep this orphanage operational. So it needed thirty thousand pounds minimum to keep it functioning, keep the keep the children in school. So myself and my friend Will Sue, who's originally from Hong Kong, decided to cycle as part of an organised expedition from London, um, excuse me, not from London, from Beijing to Tehran uh, over four months. Why from Beijing? Because I would have thought, had it been an Africa-centric project that benefits Africa, that's for young Africans, that perhaps you'd like to do on that particular beautiful, vast continent, why Beijing? Well, there's some, there's some political and sort of geopolitical tensions going on in Africa at the moment um, and doing a journey of that length in Africa poses issues there. Um, Beijing to Tehran actually traces the route of one of the first Silk Road trains, a train not dissimilar to the one that we followed from London to Yiwu. So, so there was, there was all, an initial interest back in 2016 of the One Belt, One Road, now known as the Belt and Road Initiative. And there, there, there was a sort of a, an, an idea to try and retrace that and, and get a, a more superficial understanding of, of the Belt and Road through, through doing that. And also the, the journey from Beijing to Tehran follows the historic Silk Roads and it's a route which is known as the longest, hardest, hottest and coldest cycling route in the world. So we encountered 4,600 metres passes, deserts with 45 degree heats, mornings in Mongolia at minus seven, um, winds and sandstorms in the Gobi Desert, um, and, and vast stretches of nothingness apart from um, you know, a sort of, uh, an iPhone that no longer had any charge. So it was, it was, it was this challenge and, and the, the, the difficulty also which, which inspired doing that particular route. On paper, or at least on maps, it may sound romantic, but you remind us that there are extreme weather patterns, there are extreme challenges that stem from that. What did you see that triggered the later journey to go on to the Silk Road proper? I, I think you make a, a very clever point. The, the, the Silk Road is uh, an integral part of global history, but it is something that has been romanticised somewhat. And we saw, we saw a lot of things. We experienced some very extreme conditions in, in a way which traders such as Marco Polo would have experienced in, in, in a much, much more difficult way than we had to hundreds of years ago. But in terms of initiating and, and founding the new Silk Road project, it was seeing some of the infrastructure development along the course. Um, I was aware of China's Belt and Road Initiative since 2014. It was founded in November in Astana um, in 2013. And so I, I was keeping an eye out for these things. So we saw... How old were you in November 2013, <laughs> by the way? A, 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 a puppy. I was a puppy. No, I was... Um, I was... Well, I'm still a puppy teeth. I was seven, 17, I think. 17. I, I was 17, yeah. So and when uh, you say you heard about this, because, of course, it was announced, I think, by uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, at the... I believe it was at the Nazarbayev University where he announced it over there. 
Um, and of course, it was it was symbolic that he chose to announce it in that country. Uh, where did you hear about this, though? Was it in a newspaper or was it in a project? I have a feeling it may have been in an, an academic journal I was reading um, because it wasn't something in, in the popular mainstream press as yet. Um, Not and- for a 17-year-old, anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, I... Um, I mean, yeah, no, so, so, so sadly not, sadly not. Um, but so I, I read about it there and it was just something that captured me. It captured my imagination. It captured um, my sort of my intellectual curiosity um, and, and, and sort of my, my desire to learn more about it. So going back to the cycle, we saw some of the road developments, um, a lot of Chinese construction crews, um, Chinese machinery, which is now being deployed along the, the, the key economic corridors of the Belt and Road Initiative, the, essentially the land-based compo- component, which is called the Silk Road Economic Belt. And I got an intuitive and also a more sort of informed sense that it was something important. And I wanted to go back, learn more about it, use this um, amazing experience of, of cycling the route to, to help initiate something which, um, which would help both for me and for other people to understand this important project. So you saw projects emerging and construction workers constructing within a few short months of its announcement uh, in November 2013. And yet you grew up in London, didn't you? Where I think we're still talking about another runway for Heathrow Airport and that's dragged on for many years now. Given that framework of experiences that informed your earlier life, how did it feel seeing this action unraveling? Did you take it as proactive or did you see it as aggression? I think it's very easy to to make stark dichotomies between good and bad, one and the other, but like anything, things are more complex and one of the big points of this trip was to try and understand the complexity to get away from this idea that the Belt and Road Initiative is either a a force for good in the world, that uh, a community creating a community of common destiny as as Xi Jinping has mentioned or instead as as some commentators has characterised it as, as China stretching its tentacles across the world. So we were we were we were trying to get away from 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 a sort of a dichotomous view of it, and the Belt and Road Initiative, although it's characterised and perceived as a, a a coherent and contiguous initiative, it has to be broken down into its respective parts. The policy which is deployed in the CE region is different from that which is deployed in East Africa and Central Asia. What we are seeing along the CPEC corridor from Gwadir to uh, Xinjiang province is different from that which we're seeing in um, in Southeast Asia. So we, I mean, again, we only saw a, a small part of this, but we were trying to understand some of its individual components. And that brings us now to the present day, because the journey that you embarked on for those 64 days, and it's not just about the 64 days, it's the interviews that you did along the way, it's the projects that you visited, it's the people whom you met, it's the friends, I'm sure, that you made as well, uh, that colour all those experiences for you. That's held under the umbrella of what you've created, which is the new Silk Road project. 
why new? Is it simply because it's something different to the past that it encapsulates uh, more roots maybe and more people? Is that why it's called new? Yeah, so the new, the new Silk Road project is, is definitely an allusion to the recreation of, of the historic Silk Roads. It's something which in the speech that Xi Jinping made during the announcement of of the well, the formal announcement, I should say, of the of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, alluded to very strongly and, and and mentioned about the recreation of of a a multilateral embracing community, which which is thought about in the popular imagination as as, as something like the Silk Roads. So, the new Silk Roads is something that is being used as a uh, a synonym to the Belt and Road Initiative, and we 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 wanted to use it for the project and also the the url was available on godaddy.com so that's very important isn't it <laughs> well it, it is i mean there, 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 there's there's there, there's also the practical element too and and it, it it worked very well and quickly tell us what are some of the social media handles we should be following uh, for your project to keep up to date uh, with its changing forms of course so we interviewed dozens of key academics thinkers, strategists, some politicians and business leaders along the key economic corridor which we followed um, through, through, through Central Asia and Europe and also further Eastern Asia and we will be publishing those on our YouTube platform, publish lots of photos on our Instagram and ongoing updates on our Twitter feed. So if we just Google New Silk Road Project, we'll find the different It'll handles. It'll be the, f- the first on Google. The first thing on Google as and, well. And, and also, 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 hopefully on, um, on, on Baidu or some of the other Chinese, Chinese handles. I suppose what I'm also uh, trying to ask is, should we visualise it as new versus old? I think seeing thing, things in images is a very, a very clever and also a natural way of seeing things. Words are very powerful tools and mechanisms for understanding the world, but the way that we choose to think, or at least the way I, I, I think, is I, I think through images. And the question has, a question that we tried to decipher and understand is if you could characterise or define even the Belt and Road Initiative in a single image what would that image be? And the popular image for that is a train riding across the, 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 the sort of the Eurasian man lass, land mass, excuse me. And the, 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 this is part of it, but the reality is, is the Belt and Road Initiative, in my opinion, in a single image would be a, a mill. It would be a steel, glass or cement mill because China is trying to export its overcapacity, it's trying to access new markets, it's trying to move up the global value chains and move from a industrial and export-based economy to one based on services. And the Belt and Road Initiative, I think, has, has many good intentions, but ultimately it also has to serve some of China's more economic interests. Is that what it's about then at the end of the day? I mean, there are very understandable concerns that China is using this as an engine for its own growth and that any other concerns are very secondary, whether it be connectivity, uh, inclusiveness, growth or others. It's being painted as a project that we grow together. 
in its simplest form. Is it actually accurate, though? I mean, do you see evidence of that or to the contrary? There, there are several key projects, such as the Habitota port in Sri Lanka, Gwadar along the CPEC corridor, and also um, the, the port of Piraeus, the Belgrade-Budapest line, the Pelgesac bridge in Croatia. All these projects have been characterised as examples of, of China, um, you know, do, do, doing bad things. And, you know, China, like everyone, is a country which is still learning. It's still learning its place in the world. It's still learning how to interact with, with cultures which are as fo- foreign to it, which we are to them. And I think we, we need to understand that and we need to make as much effort to understand China as I get the sense that they are to trying to understand us. There are, uh, or there is, or there are schools of thoughts that wonder whether China will continue to be relevant in its present form. Uh, should we, for example, be much more interested and invested in the United States, in the European Union, even with the fragility in the EU as it stands? Uh, what with a trade war, for example, introducing not only new external and internal tensions, but new question marks over whether China really is as important as it appears to be? You mentioned the question of interconnectivity and perhaps if there's a key defining trend in the 20th and 21st century, it's a movement towards connectivity in, in every aspect of our lives. And, 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 and with that said, we can't look at countries as, as, as isolated autonomous units. We have, to, we have to think about relations as things which are, 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 are as the word says, relative. Um, So, yes, you mentioned trade wars and issues in the EU, but to really have an understanding of this picture, we have to look at the bigger picture. I am going to ask you to perhaps share some passages from the diary that you kept along your journey. And um, before you do, I'm going to share with everybody some of what we, uh, what I learned from our uh, time together a couple of days ago. You know, I was asking Charles, which was the most dangerous parts of uh, the new Silk Road, and I think he said it was Athens, because that's where the passport belonging to one of his original three travel partners, and I think it was, in fact, it was the, the travel partner who was supposed to come with him for the entire 64 days. That passport was stolen in Athens, and, and of course, you know, we worry about changing our tickets and our flights, but for you, um, going through so many countries, it must have been a complete headache. So Athens, of all places, turned that to be the most dangerous part of, for you. Perhaps before you uh, share your diary and some of the memories from that, um, let's go back to what we talked about regarding borders and uh, mobile phone signals for you. Because I did ask you, I said, what did you have? And were you able to get signal everywhere? And you said to me... We were at a remarkable site that I would recommend anyone to go to if they have the opportunity called Ani, which sits on the Turkish-Armenian border. And it's a collection of, it's an ancient city, a collection of, I mean, the remnants, the architectural legacy at least, is a collection of of, of old Armenian churches. And and it's an amazing place. And of course, there's been some historic tensions between Turkey and Armenia. And we were... On the, on the Turkish side, we didn't enter Armenian soil, but my phone, my phone pinged the sort of the, the, the ubiquitous finger, ping of the, uh, of the iPhone when something exciting happens. And 
it was the it was my Vodafone saying that I had entered Armenia and I was now on a um, a different a different package, and it, it made me it made me smile somewhat that it comes back to this question about borders and 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 how do you define spatial areas and where and where borders sit and we were in Turkey but my phone was saying we're in Armenia and it was it was just a very curious it was very curious because the signal often comes before you arrive at the actual physical border doesn't it exactly and 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 it it comes before you're at the at the at the physical border and and do borders matter anymore that that is that is a very important question Let's go to your diary now, and um, perhaps you can tell us what you're going to read to us from that. Of course. So, as you as you mentioned, my uh, one of one of one of my travel companions and also a dear friend Tom Micklethwaite, he unfortunately got his passport stolen in in Athens, so he had to rush back to the UK, and he got it got it sorted very very efficiently, and and came and and came and joined us, and it was it was it was awful, but. In the situation, I think I think we all made the best of it. But this passage is from a visit to the port of Piraeus, which was a majority stake in it. it was acquired by Costco, the the major shipping company. And I'm going to read you a passage from the end of our visit to Piraeus, this big port which is promoting Chinese commerce. After parting ways with our kind host. I was grateful to return to the air-conditioned interior of our jeep. From here, the Greek Orthodox Church of St. Nicholas stands across the road. My eyes trace around its azure domes and then down the fluted columns of a classical architectural order. It provides a fitting reminder of the architectural legacy passed down from a Western civilization and the associated values, institutions and beliefs some of which the European Union still enshrines today. Some of these inherited legacies are less visible, but certainly no less beautiful or important than the architecture which this site preserves. They should be cradled as carefully as the commerce that Chinese vessels carry and heard as clearly as the voices which accompany them from across Eurasia. The point of this passage was that we must remember and value our past as much as we look towards the future. And we are all lucky to have a, a, a rich past and, and we must remember it. Is that being practised as buildings are being built or bridges or highways? Are they respecting what came before and are they respecting the communities that these spaces hold and nurture within? That's a really, really good question, and I'm not sure I have a clear answer to it. What I would say, though, is that the development of infrastructure is ultimately a very positive force, helping a a, a small village community access a town so they can sell their commerce, helping for a family to go on holiday to a beach that once took them 10 hours to get to, but now takes them four hours to get to. Of course, the terms and the mechanisms in which this infrastructure is built is, is something which can be disputed, but infrastructure in itself is, um, is an amazing thing and, and, and something that helps both cities and, and, and the world to, to, to function effectively. Um, so I don't think infrastructure in itself is, is a bad thing whatsoever. Um, the terms, may they be through 
loans or grants and which com- com- countries help to finance them is something which can have issues if you if you say to a country it's going to be 15% to build 15% interest to build your road if not we're going to take control of a you know a certain a certain port or something then that's less good but infrastructure in itself is i think a very beautiful thing you touched on architecture which is extremely important uh, design of course um, because i remember going to mexico city and very close to I believe it was the presidential palace. There is an area just off to the side of the public square there, um, which is protected. And there's glass at ground level. And you can see literally different layers of civilization that have been built on top of one another as they have come after the one that arrived before it. Um, What has it taught you this or shared with you this trip in terms of the function of architecture? Are we just seeing buildings rising from beneath the ground? Or are we seeing thoughtful or even strategic uses of architecture um, to project new civilizations? Architecture is very, very interesting because it's one of the few tangible legacies of previous civilizations. You may have oral culture, you may have music, you may have the the I mean the the written word word to some to some extent. But architecture is something very visible and something that's very easy for everyone to engage in. And Piraeus was an interesting example because it's the it's the cradle of of Athenian democracy and and in a sense Western civilization. If I if I can call it Western civilization, and standing next to where China has acquired this port are the long walls, the long walls of Athens, um, which protected and protected um, Attica and also joined Athens with the port of Piraeus, where the tribe, the tri, the triremes, the the mechanism for um, Athenian naval expansion um, was held. So. things layer upon each other and infrastructure does the same new built infrastructure or even more 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 aesthetic buildings are doing the same they're 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 layering on top of history um roads by themselves and and bridges play a very functional role i think the 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 more interesting the more interesting things are 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 sort of the, the the sort of the status buildings the buildings which are built um, that may be something like like the the the, the new freedom tower in um, I think it's in Jeddah. I could be wrong though, or or, or some of the big buildings in in, in Dubai. The, these the, the these symbols of, of 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 power, wealth, status, and and what they project. I think that that in itself is interesting, but is not necessarily directly associated with with the Belt and Road. Is this a new order then, in the sense that? You know, we have the Arc de Triomphe, and and we have um, the Duke of Wellington's home at Number One London, for example. Uh, is are these new entryways to new ideologies? I, I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't really answer your question before. In the way that we saw the the the, the legacies of the Silk Road before uh, the the Registan in in Samarkand and Uzbekistan or, or or the beautiful domes of of, of Bukhara or, or Kiva, it will be interesting to see what our our our, our forebearers will look back on now as 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 the great symbols of 
of architecture. And in terms of China's Belt and Road Initiative, I don't think there's anything that's been constructed which is quite as beautiful as the as the Goryamir or, or or the Registan in, in Samarkand. I think you're laying down the challenge over here, aren't you? Well, I mean, I mean, I would. I think it's to the benefit of all to 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 the, to, to, to everyone that, that that beautiful buildings are are, are made and. I know across the uh, across the bay from where we are now, the, there's the, the the West Kowloon Cultural District, which is being constructed, and it will be very interesting to see as a as an aside how that takes form. I'm fascinated. I'm sure everyone is who's listening to this conversation uh, as to your plans for the future, because we talk about you going for 64 days. I mean, literally, you were in a jeep from. London, I'm not sure, did you leave from your house? Is that literally how it happened? We left from the Chinese embassy. So oh, you left from the Chinese embassy? We did. So we met with we met with officials at the Chinese embassy. And then we also visited... Uh, well, we, how did they react to you, Charles? Well, <laughs> we, were, we were in contact with them. Um, and I was fortunate to have uh, attended a, a talk at St. Andrews University, where I'm currently an undergraduate, uh, by the, the Chinese ambassador to the UK. I didn't engage with him about about my project, but um, you know I'd had. You subsequently that. reached out. Yes, to we, them. we reached out to the Chinese embassy, and they were very supportive and and um, invited us to, to 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 visit and 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 meet with them. And also, we will be meeting with them when we return. And this is not uh, a Chinese project of yours. I mean, you have a whole range of supporters. I know Jeep came. CSIS is on with you as well. Tell us about who some of the other people are involved. So, so we're lucky to have a very, um, you know, a very, very able and and a, a very yeah. A, a, we're lucky to have a great group of supporters: Jeep, CSIS, Magellan Capital, Design Shira, and of course also the University of Saint Andrews. It, it sounds, as we said at the beginning, romantic, and that's the temptation to visualize. Uh, um, you know, parts of the world that we don't understand uh, and to diminish them almost as exotic um, words that uh, are not only inaccurate but sometimes can be offensive to people living in those areas. Um, but I remember you telling me also about, I mean, I, I had these questions for you because if I go and do an interview on, on television, for example, because you were filming them for audio and visual, I would be very dressed up. And when I was in television, of course, there'll be hair and makeup. There'll be, you know, a bag of hairspray and foundation and brushes. And yet you told me that you left with six white shirts. Six white shirts, Charles, won't even last me a week in a hotel. And yet you brought six white shirts and you were so clever about it because you said as soon as, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this with everybody, it was very, very hygienic, let me assure everybody first, but you know, you do these interviews, say on construction sites, and then you would literally take off the shirts when you got back to the car and put it into a, a garment bag of sorts and hang it back up inside the car. So you were very efficient and sustainable and you devised a mechanism that worked for you very well, and I, and I suppose you always wore shirts because not only is the professional thing to do in those contexts, but also it was the respectful thing um, to do as well uh, for you. Um, I, 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 did you did you bring your own hard hat after all this? No, no, no. We we, we, we didn't. We, we we got given those, thankfully. Do you keep mementos? Did what did you keep from each part? 
So many of the places where we visited, they 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 gave us some 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 gifts, and we also reciprocated. We bought two two cases of of Fortnum and Mason's biscuits, which we distributed across Eurasia. How many packets or boxes to that? A, about twenty four. That's very, very English, Charles. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, of course, Fortnum & Mason is the, uh, not only a store in London, it's the leading, how would you say, it's, it's, it, it, it's an entity, it's an institution, well known for its tea, for its biscuits, for its cakes, but also for its... Charles, what were you doing bringing Fortnum & Mason over to, to uh, different parts of the world? I was going to say the New World, but it's not. It's probably older, much older <laughs> than the civilization that you come from or that it represents. Well, we, I mean, as you say, Fortnum & Mason's is, a, is an English institution and we wanted to give a, a present which both expressed our gratitude um, and, and gave part of um, English, English, English culture and, uh, and the, good, the good tastes of, 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 of the British Isles abroad. And um, it's just delicious as well isn't it absolutely just fantastic. simply we unfortunately we, we were very very good in that i mean of course we were in a, a jeep and a fantastic top of the right line jeep which uh, fiat chrysler group which is the umbrella group for jeep very very kindly um leased to us but our space was still limited so we had to be practical we, we, we had to be practical and you think bringing Forsman and mason's biscuits probably isn't the most practical thing but um, and they didn't get damaged. They didn't the get damaged, and we didn't even eat any either. So we were very proud of ourselves. Um, so you didn't even touch it. Oh, no, absolutely not. No, no. And it held up in the weather. So we, we we had we had good air conditioning, and they were at the bottom of of, of things. They're also in metal in metal containers too, so they were good. That's extraordinary. So if you ever decide uh, to retrace the Silk Road, bring Fortnum and Mason biscuits with you in tin boxes. That will be the gift to give. That's a very, very clever idea. Um, what were some of the other memories? And then take us now to what happens next, because you're entering your third year at St Andrews um, and Scotland, like the United States, what they share um, not only is uh, a president of the United States, um, but also what they share are four-year undergraduate degree courses. Whereas in the rest, say for example of England, uh, uh, it's it's typically three years unless it's a specialised degree course. So going into the third year, what are you going to do, and how are you going to bring this further? Of course. So I will be going back at the beginning of September after leaving leaving Hong Kong and continuing my undergraduate studies, which I'm, I'm very excited about. I will also be working to continue this program. I will be flying out to the US in Christmas time, just, just after Christmas, to interview key academics involved in the Belt and Road Initiative at some of the major institutions on the, on the West and East Coast of America. So the plan is, in terms of our key output, is to build the new Silk Road project into one of the most geographically comprehensive and authoritative bodies of knowledge on the Belt and Road Initiative to date. And we think we have already achieved that with the interview series that we will be publishing from across the middle corridor of Eurasia, but we hope to build that up and continue it. I want to finish with a question that perhaps I then should have opened up with. and. It's this, because I think sometimes the most complex of subjects require and demand of us the simplest of questions. How would you explain the Silk Road today to someone who may be hearing about 
New Silk Road, Belton Road Initiative, Belton Road. There are different names that essentially uh, talk about the same areas with maybe slightly tilted emphases. I think the Belton Road Initiative can be what we want to anyone. I think it can be a little bit like an onion. You can continue to peel back the layers and with each different layer it has a different meaning to it. Um, as you said, it's something that has been romanticised and as a result of it is, is not necessarily understood properly, but it's, it, it's a vision of a, uh, of, uh, at least in the way it's perceived in the popular imagination, it's a vision of a, of a, of a collective multilateral future which is is mutually inclusive and and, and beneficial and perhaps for, for for the sake of hope and optimism that's the way that we should think about it if we look at a map today on google or if we consult more recent cartography we'll see the world as imagined as positioned around the pacific ocean will that be the case for your children so th- that's a really interesting question there's a there's um there's something called the Mercator projections, which are not not the the not the Mercator projections. I'll, I'll start again. So, the, the the way that the way that the world the world map is is shown is is on the basis of projections in order to um, translate a a two D model into a three D model, and and some parts of the of the land mass are squished and other ones are expanded. So you'll see on a map the UK is is disproportionately large compared to the amount of land it is. The UK, in terms of land areas, is actually the same size as Florida. But you look in a map and you compare the UK to Florida. They're, they're not quite the same. Um, and on, on, on a more broad point, in the UK, our maps are, are centred around the, the transatlantic axis with the GMT, Britain, being at the centre. If you come to China, maps are focused around the South China Sea. That is it's the centre of the map. And it goes to show a lot of everything is about perception and, and, and the way that we frame things on a map is very important to the way that which power is projected. And imagine sitting in a classroom before you're even conscious of these things and looking at that map on the back wall and, and seeing whatever you see is central. And, and that's very, very important that we have to remember that we all see the world in a different way. Not, not necessarily one is right or wrong, but the collective of all of them is probably the right way of seeing them. You can follow the new Silk Grow project and Charles Stevens on all social media. And Charles, I think we just wish you the very best of luck uh, for happy, fulfilling, meaningful and mostly safe travels ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. Like, follow and subscribe at The China Current and all your favorite social media platforms, including Twitter and Facebook, and also on podcasts, Apple, SoundCloud and Spotify. Thank you for joining us.